All right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Ardella Training Podcast, the Strength and Performance Podcast. My name is Scott Ardella. I'm your host. And welcome this week, episode number 257, with my guest, Sue Falsoni. She's the author of the great new book titled Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. Now, Sue was a past guest here on the show, but this time around was a really awesome chat covering her innovative approach to get out of pain and return to peak performance. Now, before we get into the interview this week, you may know that I am a huge fan of books. Obviously, we talk about a lot of books here on the show. We interview a lot of book authors on the show. And this week, the podcast is brought to you by one of my favorite educational resources, where you will find over 18,000 book summaries in many different topics, such as leadership, self-development, and science, just to name a few. That resource is called Get Abstract, and it is a really great uh, book summary site where you will find book summaries. These book summaries are basically five pages uh, that distill the best information from all of these great books. Again, over 18,000 book titles you will find on the website, and you can take advantage of a free three-day trial to test it out and see for yourself. So go to ardellatraining.com forward slash get smart and check out this incredible learning resource and accelerate your learning by getting all of these great book summaries. And what I always do is if I like the summaries, I'll go and I'll get the book and I'll read even further into that information. But it is a really, really great resource. I can't recommend it enough. So check it out. I think that you will find it very, very valuable. Once again, go to ardellotraining.com forward slash get smart. All right. So this week, uh, I talked to Sue Falsoni. She's fantastic. She is a physical therapist, a athletic trainer. Uh, she has done some incredible things in the industry. Uh, she has some great learning resources out there. She does some great seminars. And you're going to hear about some of the stuff that she is doing in this session um, I, I really love her new book because it covers really one end of the spectrum to the other. It covers information from the rehab perspective and dealing with pain to the strength and performance perspective and approaching high performance. Now, Sue does a great job in simplifying the concepts and explains many different approaches and systems in this book. It's really, really unique. And, uh, of course, the book does have practical applications as well. So she talks about the book, the book writing process, what the book is, what it attempts to do. I think you'll learn a lot in this interview about the book, whether you have it already or if you just want to learn about the book and her approach as well. So there are many great pearls uh, in this session. Certainly, there are many great pearls in the book, no matter what perspective you're coming from, no matter what your background is. So I think you'll get a lot out of this session. So let's uh, do it without further delaying things. Let's get right into the interview this week with Sue Falsoni. I think you're really going to enjoy this session. And uh, I had a a blast uh, talking with Sue this time around. Sue Falsoni is the founder of Structure and Function Education and Falsoni Consulting. Sue has an amazing background in athletic training, physical therapy, and strength and conditioning, and she is now the author of the new book, Bridging the Gap 
from rehab to performance. And uh, Sue, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. We did an interview some time back. And uh, so thank you so much for being here. And secondly, congratulations on this book. Uh, the book is sitting here right on my desk right now. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. And I'm excited to dive into these questions and kind of um, ask you a lot of things about you know, what makes this book so unique, because I really do think that it uh, bridges gaps in the literature that's out there. So thanks so much for being here. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me on again. And thank you so much for the kind words on the book. It was definitely a a labor of love and uh, glad that you're enjoying it. (laughs) Absolutely. So before we do talk about the book and some other questions that I have for you, uh, did want to start off with a little bit about your professional career. And instead of kind of going through your backstory, I wanted to just ask you this. What's been the highlight of your career so far? You've done a lot. You have so many different experiences in the the areas that I just mentioned, being athletic training, physical therapy, and the strength and conditioning side. If you could say what's been the highlight so far, what would you say? Wow, that's a really tough question. I've had a lot of uh, a really, really cool experiences. Um, gosh, everything from my time at UNC to, um, you know, with the Dodgers and with the U S men's national team and with some of the consulting I do now, like so many amazing things. But I think if I had to choose one, it would be sort of that beginning time. Um, when I started to work for, for Mark Verstegen at athletes performance back in 2001, right. When, um, the business was just starting to go, I think I was employee number seven. Um, and we just sort of, started, there was literally seven of us. And, you know, I was the only physical therapist and there were six strength coaches and we, um, or five strength coaches and an administrative, you know, person. And, uh, um, it was just a really, really special time to sort of be a part of that and kind of lay the foundation for what athletes performance and, you know, Exos now is today, um, really laid the foundation for me as a physical therapist, athletic trainer and strength coach and being able to function in all of those roles. Um, it was just a really, really special time in my life. And I think that that's, that time is probably the highlight for me. Nice. Nice. Yeah. On the flip side of that, has there, have you had a low point or a challenging time in your career? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that that time when I left the Dodgers, um, and I left athletes performance, um, I left both of those positions within six months of each other. Um, and I was really, I just thought I was like absolutely killing my career. I thought I have two of the best positions in the country that people would absolutely kill for. And, um, here I am leaving both of them. And I thought, you know, I was potentially making the biggest mistake of my life. Um, and it was really, really difficult to make that choice, but I was really burnt out and I knew I just couldn't continue on the, the path that I was on and that, um, I just needed to make a really difficult decision. But, um, you know, that difficult decision was absolutely difficult and, and not an easy one to make. Um, but I think it was a necessary one and, and grateful that I made it. And I think that, um, you know, I'm on a, on, I'm on a great path where I am. And I think that the things that have happened over the last three to five years wouldn't have happened if, if I didn't make that decision. So, um, yeah, even though that, that was, I would probably say, I don't want to say that was a low point, but it was probably the most difficult point in my career for sure. Is there anything about that time period, the last three to five years that you would change looking back? 
No, you know, I think um, there's not really much about my life in general that that I would change. I just don't have a lot of regrets. I feel like whether they there were successes or failures, they've all sort of put me on this place that I am. Um, I'm a huge believer that we are where we're supposed to be. And um, so whether they were successes or failures or, or things that maybe I would have wanted to go differently. If they would have gone differently, I would be in a completely different place right now. And so, you know, I know I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. So, so no, I don't have any regrets or changes. So I talked about how you have, you know, so many different roles as a a trainer, a therapist and a strength and conditioning coach. Is there one role that you identify the most with? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to try to get my dog's toy away from him. I'm sure you can hear the speaking going on. No worries. Uh, <laughs> and now he's growling at me. Um, yeah, you know, I, that's a great question. Um, I, I really don't identify with one over the other. Um, I think that I have a huge, um, I, I love the strength and conditioning aspect of stuff, but I love it from the place of rehab and performance that I approach it from. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really difficult for me to, um, it's really difficult for me to just put, uh, you know, to pick one of those things. And I think that's why one of the reasons why I loved working for Mark, um, so long ago and why I appreciate the opportunity he gave me was because he was really the person who didn't make me choose. I didn't have to choose one profession and he really kind of allowed me a space where I could be all three. And so I really identify with all three and feel like, um, I wouldn't be good at any one of those things if I didn't have the other two as a part of it. Do you feel like you, uh, are basically, or were basically putting on a, a hat of a a trainer or a hat of a physical therapist, or were you really kind of combining everything at once? Yeah, I I think at times there's definitely times where I do function more as an athletic trainer, a physical therapist or a strength coach for sure. Um, you know, specifically as, uh, you know, an athletic trainer, physical therapist, obviously when people are hurt, you have to put on that evaluative hat and you have to approach it from that standpoint. And then I can either create a strength program or work with the strength and conditioning coach sort of within that framework. Um, so I think, you know, if sometimes I, I have to kind of put on that evaluative clinician hat, um, but, and there's different positions that sort of have made me do that more than others. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that there's definitely times where that has to happen. So the, the way I see it is, and let's just talk about physical therapy and strength and conditioning. So if you can imagine, if the audience can imagine maybe a straight line and on one side you have the strength and conditioning professional and on the other side you have the physical therapist. And there's kind of a, a gap between those two areas, but I think that the gap is uh, kind of coming together. I think there's certainly some uh, clinicians and coaches that I know out there that, and yourself actually would be perfect example of that. You're, you're a hybrid, you know, you have that background as a clinician and then a strength and conditioning professional. So my question is, is, is that why this book was written is to, and I I know I'm using the word bridge a gap, which is the the title, but actually that's, (laughs) that's really what it is, is bringing together both sides of this spectrum. Absolutely. That is absolutely why I wanted to write this book was that I felt like there were so many amazing strength and conditioning books out there. There's so many amazing rehab books out there. 
And yet there really wasn't something that kind of um, broached the subject of exactly that, bridging the gap from rehab to performance. And it is a space in today's day and age that so many of us are living in because, right, our healthcare system is a bit broken and people are showing up in gyms and in facilities and um, strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers are having to work with injured people more so now than ever uh, because people's health insurance benefits are running out and people are, are looking for help in places that they didn't used to have to look for help for before. So um, the, the, the way our, our system is right now, it's really sort of forcing, um, it's sort of forcing patients to, to, go into facilities and it's really kind of making people be armed, um, or making, uh, personal trainers and strength coaches have to be armed with some of this medical knowledge. And so I felt like it was a really important message across the board. Um, and I feel like it's really a space where I've lived and, and functioned, um, kind of in that place between, between rehab and performance. Is there a, a certain type of clinician that you feel would, uh, benefit the most from the book? Um, I, I think I really wrote the book from a place of all, of all three, uh, of all three things really from a, from a rehab standpoint and, and from an intermediate standpoint and from a performance standpoint. And I think that is one of the hardest things about writing the book. And I would say that my editor, Larry Draper would say it was one of the most difficult things too, because what I would do is I would change my voice. Um, as I was talking a little bit from like a rehab standpoint to a performance standpoint. And so for me, words like patient um, and client and athlete and human, like these are all interchangeable words for me. But yeah, sometimes when, you know, um, maybe a strength coach doesn't look at their client as a patient um, and maybe a physical therapist or a chiropractor doesn't look at their patient as an athlete. And so, you know, I would kind of switch back and forth between different terms. And, and so that it was difficult, but I really think that, that everyone along, and when I say a healthcare model, that to me includes performance because performance is about health as well. So I really feel like anyone in the healthcare continuum can benefit from the book. In my opinion, I think that it sort of works opposite um, for me. I think that a strength and conditioning coach or a personal trainer would benefit more from the beginning aspect of the book where I talk more about pain and movement segments and psychomotor control and balance in the nervous system, whereas I think many clinicians will benefit more from the towards the end of the book, which is more about strength and conditioning and power training and um, fundamental movement and athletic movement. Um, and so I almost think that it, it's sort of flipped, that I, I think that um, whatever you are, you'll benefit more from the opposite end of the book, if that makes sense. <laughs> right, right. So would you recommend that no matter what no matter what side you're on, do you recommend kind of reading from start to finish all the way through? I do. I feel like that's where the power of the book comes in because I feel like it's really about presenting an overall continuum. And I think that no matter what the letters are after your name, I think there's going to be parts of the book that you significantly identify with. And there's going to be parts of it that you feel like maybe you need to either get more education in or that you need to befriend someone who has more education in that area. But I think bottom line what the book does is it presents a, a, I don't want to say continuum because that makes it seem like you have to go from one box to another and sort of move your way through in a specific order. And that's not really the case. I think what the book does is it presents an organizational system where no matter what your education uh, is, um, whatever you're doing fits. And it just sort of gives you a picture 
to say, okay, here's where my strengths are. Here's maybe where my weaknesses are and where I can improve on. Um, and it kind of gives you that overall picture. So I think you really would benefit from going through the book from start to finish to, to get the full breadth of that organizational system. Can you talk about the, uh, the book writing process for you? Uh, and what I mean is, you know, how long did this project take you? And then what did it look like, uh, for you being, you know, busy with everything that you have going on? Did you work on this daily? Did you have a daily writing habit? What did it take for you to get this book done? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, this, it was a tough one. And Lurie warned me, um, Lurie Draper, um, of on target public publications is my editor and publisher. And she is absolutely amazing. And if it wasn't for her, there's no way this book would have been done. She, she warned me and she, uh, kind of took me through every step of the process. It was two years in the making for sure. Um, way longer than I thought. And it was, I believe we had 10 revisions. Um, it took me to, I think about version four before I even got positive feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Like the first three versions were just like, this doesn't make any sense. This is way too much. It overpowers the entire book. I love your conclusion. It's now your introduction. Rewrite the conclusion. I'm like, no, (laughs) it was so, um, it was so frustrating. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, um, but Lurie, you know, she's such a pro and she just took me through it and she would just, you know, she would send me these great emails and, and be like, okay, read through the feedback. And then I don't want you to look at it for 10 days. I'm going to email you in 10 days and we're going to start over. We're, no, we're going to go through it. I'm like, okay. So I would go through it and I would read it and I would like, you know, practically cry and then put it away. And then sure enough, she'd email me in 10 days and say, okay, let's get back at it. So, you know, she, um, was really good about keeping me on task. Um, I definitely am one of those people that have to have creative days where I just block out an entire day and I don't answer emails and I don't make phone calls. Um, and I would just spend my day writing, um, as opposed to, you know, if you have, it's not something that I can do if I have an hour, I couldn't sit down and do anything unless it was grammar stuff or, you know, just little stuff. Um, I I definitely am someone who needs chunks of time, like six to eight hours of time where I focus on nothing but that project in order to move something forward. I just can't get stuff like that done in one to two hour blocks. Interesting. Interesting. That's why I wanted to ask you that because I know that everybody has a different take on how they work, uh, to maximize productivity. So, uh, for you, it's the, the big long stretches as opposed to the shorter time blocks. Yeah. Yeah. I just really need, because I think I, I get so distracted and I, I get, um, and once I get distracted and then I start going down a different path and then I, and I think that's like one of the reasons why it, it took so long to even just get the first few versions down. Cause I was just kind of all over the map and Larry just did an amazing job at sort of streamlining and bringing it all back together, which was really cool. So maybe jumping way ahead, way ahead here with this question, but do you think there will ever be a follow-up or an, a next book based on this experience? The answer right now is a very heavy no. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, everyone says kind of <laughs> right, give yourself right. a year before you say that. Um, sure. You know, it, it was really one of the most difficult things I've ever done professionally. Um, and anybody who's written a book um, will probably tell you the same thing. It's just it's one of those things that I felt really compelled to do and I'm glad that I did it, but I'm also glad I'm on this side of it right now. Um, I'm glad it's out there and I'm glad it's done. I'm I'm glad it's been well received. And, um, it was, it was definitely a growth thing for me. It really, 
when you have to, when you write a book and you have to try to put your thought processes down and organized in a way that most people can understand it, you know, your target audience can really understand it. Um, it's really a growing experience for you. It really helps to organize your own thoughts within your brain and within your practice. I think a lot of times stuff that we do can be so intuitive that when you have to finally sit down and explain it to someone, you're like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. Why do I do that? Like, why do I do it that way? Or, you know, why do I put that here? And so when you have to begin to justify yourself and justify yourself in a way that it's going to be written down forever for everybody to judge and pick apart, um, it makes you be really, really honest with what you do and who you are and, and how you approach things. And so, um, that's really makes you super vulnerable, um, as a human and as a professional. So, you know, that can be pretty stressful. It's, it was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done. I'm, I'm really, really glad I did it, but I, I am happy I'm on this side of it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, one of the great things I think you did with the book is you covered so oh. much information and a lot of evidence, a lot of the science is in this book, but you really managed to simplify it. So I think you did a great job with that. Thank so just you. want to uh, call that out. Thank you very much. Sure. Talk about how the system was really developed and refined. Yeah. Um, you know, it really goes back to my time with a, a man named Phil Sizer. Um, Phil and I met, I think, back in 06. And I took um, a class uh, with the International Academy of Orthopedic Medicine. And it was a class on the knee. And Phil taught it. And it was a three-day class. And I, and I needed some um, physical therapy continuing education credits at the time. And, you know, at that time, I'd been living so much in the strength and conditioning world that I was like, okay, I need to take like a PT class. I need to kind of get back to some roots here. And so I decided to take this class. And I thought, it's a three-day class on the knee. Like, what in the world are we going to learn in three days on the yeah. knee. Like it's not that complicated. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I, <laughs> right. and Phil was teaching the class and I walked out of that class thinking it has been malpractice that I have ever treated a knee patient prior oh, to this class. I learned so much wow. and it was so incredible. And I um, developed a friendship and, and a um, professional relationship with Phil and, and we would just talk a ton. And so uh, I was trying to kind of swing back more towards the PT side of the house. And he was really trying to explore the performance and strengthening conditioning side of the house. And so we kind of were um, sort of two people kind of walking through the professional, bridging the gap from rehab to performance world, really from opposite ends of the spectrum. And so we spent a lot of time talking and chatting, and I ended up completing um, all of the IOM courses. And I think there's 12 courses, and I think I did them all in 14 months. So I just like went crazy with this. Um, orthopedic manual therapy curriculum. And so got to spend a lot of time with him and a lot of time chatting about this. And, and really from our discussions is where the organizational organizational system came from. And it was something that we sat down and picked apart and talked about a lot and really kind of put together. And really ever since then, that was probably around 2008. And so um, really over the last 10 years, it, it just has really sort of developed and progressed and refined itself um, within my own personal practice. For someone that's listening and they're they're not familiar with the the system, um, is there a way that you can explain maybe the big picture of of what the the bridge the gap approach is? Absolutely, I think I think what 
the bridging the gap approach is, is that it just recognizes the fact that there is a time and a place for just about everything. And that the, the concept of returning, and, and I'm going to use the concept of athlete here and kind of the concept of returning an athlete to sport, but know that I can be talking about returning, you know, my mom to work. It's the same thing in my brain. It's just different variables and different objectives and different goals. But, you know, bottom line, when we're trying to return an athlete to sport, um, there's so many different variables um, after they've had an injury and none are more important than the other, but they all need to be addressed, which is why I get hesitant to call it a continuum is because you can be working on strength and balance at the same time. It's not like you have to have all your balance before you start to work on strength. So it's just an organizational system that kind of helps you figure out where everything fits. So it's really important in my mind that we identify what the pain generator is. I think it makes a difference um, on what tissue is the issue. And it makes a difference if you're dealing with a tendonitis or a bursitis or a tendinopathy or a stenosis or a herniated disc. I think these things really matter up front. Um, and if you can't identify a pain generator because there is not one present, then you have a client who is in a chronic state of pain or a more nociceptive state of pain, or I'm sorry, um, a more nocioplastic um, state of pain. And that's a completely different client than someone who's in more of a nociceptive or an inflammatory state of pain. And so I think identifying why your client is in pain up front um, makes a huge, huge difference. And then framing that um, pain or that dysfunction within the motion segment. So not only dealing with their shoulder pain, but why are they having shoulder pain? Is it because it's from their neck or is there a dysfunction at their elbow and wrist and hand? Um, and the dysfunction is showing up in their shoulder. Like we have to kind of put this within the bigger picture. And then as we move forward, we have to be able to make sure that the right muscle is firing at the right time. We need to make sure that synergists are being synergists, stabilizers are being stabilizers, prime movers are being prime movers. The body gets really angry when a prime mover is trying to be a stabilizer or when a stabilizer is trying to be a prime mover. Compensation ensues, pain eventually ensues, and so that can be a problem. Um, and then as we move kind of through the, the framework, balance and proprioception and our vestibular system and vision and um, the environment and all the things that sort of go along with postural reflexes and sort of just the nervous system as a whole is super important. And then we continue to move uh, through and and we look at the foundations of strength and how important very, very foundational strength is um, and how important it is to express strength um, over time. So as we're talking about power development, because really that's what people need. People need to be able to express strength as a function of time. So it's really about developing power. And then it's about developing fundamental athletic movement. People need to be able to, uh, you know, our athletes need to be able to run Well, they need to either have to have acceleration or absolute speed or, or multidirectional movement or jumping or landing. There's just really sort of these fundamental athletic movements that are really important to most, to most athletes. And then they have to be able to express those fundamental athletic movements in the function of their sport. So it gets very, very sport and position specific. And so again, all of these things are very, very important. And it just makes a difference as far as, you know, yoga is a great example. Yoga is a wonderful example if I'm working on someone's fundamental strength, balance, um, and psychomotor control. But yoga is a horrible thing for me to choose if I'm trying to teach someone acceleration. So it just kind of helps people frame um, or put some things, um, into an organizational system that says, okay, wow, like I know a lot about strength and power development, but I really don't know how this applies to movement or man, I really understand movement, but I don't understand pain at all. Or man, I really understand like psychomotor control stuff, but 
I have no idea how to apply it to basketball. And so it really just sort of helps people sort of organize their, not only their, their mind, but their programming. Um, and as well as their continuing education to say where maybe their expertise lies and maybe where they they need to find another healthcare professional that has other expertise than what they do. You just talked about a lot of the systems, the, the, the boxes in the bridge the gap approach. Is there a area that you have the most personal interest in yourself? Yeah, right now for me, that middle box, that somatosensory control box is so interesting. Um, and I really think if I had to pick one box that bridges the gap from rehab to performance, it would be that box. Wow. Okay. Because it's the nervous system. And I know people get really uncomfortable talking about the nervous system. I know we want to talk about the musculoskeletal system and we want to talk about biomechanics. But if it were about biomechanics, we'd have it figured out by now. I'm not saying that biomechanics aren't important. I'm just saying we've all seen that kid, right? Or that athlete who like just moves moves beautifully and yet they're hurt constantly. Like you can't keep them on the field. And then that guy that just looks kind of like a train wreck and yet they've never spent a day on the DL. So it's not just about biomechanics. It's about the nervous system and how, um, how the nervous system selects a movement pattern based on the degrees of freedom that an organism has, uh, in order to complete a task in the, any given environment that the task needs to be performed in. Like to me, that's bottom line functional training. Um, and is really just based off of concepts of the dynamic systems theory, um, which is, is looking at how the organism, the task and the environment work together. And the thing that, that does that is the nervous system. The nervous system is going to select the moment movement pattern that is most efficient for the task, given the restraints of the organism and given the environment that it's performing the task in that's bottom line. And so the nervous system to me is really, really the key. And I think that box is really what links rehab and performance together. So the nervous system is where it's at, but you you did mention biomechanics and it's it's interesting because I've actually been just kind of going back and reading some, some old biomechanics books that I have. And I'm curious since you brought it up, how, how would you explain the importance of biomechanics in the most simple terms? And I know this is a very fundamental question, but why is biomechanics important? Yeah, and I do. I think biomechanics are important. I think I think the way, like to me, biomechanics is is just basically applying the concepts of physics to human anatomy. And so we know that that those things do matter. But I, we've also seen people, like I've had athletes who are a biomechanical disaster. They have terrible stability. Their mobility is horrible. I have no idea how they're producing force because they can't even stand on one leg. And yet they're never hurt. And that kid who just absolutely performs every exercise to the best of his ability um, and can do anything I ask him to do in the gym or in the weight room, um, he cannot stay healthy. And so that's, why is that, right? Right, So I, I think the way physics is applied to the body absolutely matters. It's just not the only thing that matters. Got it. Got it. Yeah. All right. Now I know the system, uh, is based on, it's basically designed for the athlete, but can, can this entire system be utilized in, in someone that is a non-athlete? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. For me, my mom factor, right? My mom's 75. And I always think, you know, she, um, fell and, uh, this was years ago. She's fine now, but, um, years ago we were in new Orleans and she fell and she, um, uh, fractured her arm and like a bad open fracture. The whole thing was pretty gnarly. And, um, you know, she had to go to rehab and 
you know, bottom line, she's 75. The only thing she wanted to do was golf. That was her main goal. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. um, you know, and she's, she's not a great golfer. Um, I'm sorry, mom, you know, I would say that if you were listening, uh, but she enjoys it and she loves it. Right. And she wanted to be able to take care of herself and she wanted to be able to golf. And so she had to move through every, and as I was applying this concept to her and to her rehab, as she was working her way back to her activities of daily living and to golf, um, it, absolutely every piece of the puzzle fit for her. And she needed to have every single one of those pieces of the puzzle addressed, um, in order to attain, attain her goal. So yeah, absolutely. I think it can apply to, to athletes and non-athletes alike. How much of the, the bridge, the gap approach is based on Well, you talk about it, you talk about it in the book, it being based on evidence, the science, and then clinical experience. Is it skewed one way versus the other? That's a great question. And I have this debate with people all the time. Um, and it's really, it's really, really interesting. When we look at the definition of evidence-based practice, evidence-based practice is about the best available evidence, um, clinician experience and patient values. And really not one of those things are more important than the other. It's just depending on what you're talking about, one of those things may have more um, emphasis than another, just simply because the best available evidence in the literature oftentimes is not much evidence at all. And so when we look at certain diagnoses or we look at certain things and we look to the evidence and we look to the literature to tell us what to do, there's really a non-consensus, um, specifically when we're talking about non-surgical or non-pharmacological rehab. Um, I was just in this, um, sort of multidisciplinary, multi-organizational pain summit not long ago. And it was really interesting because I had to to present the non-pharmacological approach to pain. And really, when you comb the literature, other than movement and not even like specific exercise, like just don't sit on the couch all day, (laughs) other than that, Really, there's almost no evidence for anything we do from a physical therapy standpoint, like overall in general, when it just talks about pain management. And so like movement is just a really, really good thing. And so the more you dive into the literature, the more you're going to see that, that, yeah, we've got some evidence to support certain things. And there's, there's certain studies that say, yeah, and there's certain studies that say maybe no. And, and there's a lot of stuff that sort of points us in whatever direction we really want to go. Cause I can find you a study that supports almost anything I do or refutes anything that I don't like. Um, right. So we can, we can play that game where I'll give you a study for, and you can give me a study against for just about every single thing we have. So when we really kind of look to the evidence to say, what should we do? There's very little consensual evidence for almost anything. So really best available evidence is exactly that best available evidence. And then on top of that, it's clinician experience. So again, my personal beliefs as a clinician, if I believe in cupping and I believe in dry needling, of course, I'm going to look for literature that supports those things. If you think those things are stupid, you're going to look for literature that supports those things. So the clinician experience makes a huge difference on what is being approached to the patient. And then patient values makes a huge things too. If a patient's values, um, it, are, you know, if they're very into Eastern medicine and they're very into mind, body, spirit, 
then they're going to be really, really open to things like meditation and yoga. If you have someone who's extremely pragmatic and thinks meditation is stupid, then I wouldn't approach them with meditation as a form of pain control. So their patient values is a huge part to it as well. So there's really not one of these things that is more important than the others. It's just, it can be very, very situational and all three things really need to be considered. I want to go back. Did you say that there is very little little evidence to support that movement is helpful for pain management? No, there's. That's about the only thing that that the evidence shows is that movement oh, is helpful. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like, whoa. All right. Yeah. No, movement <laughs> okay. is is really helpful for pain control, and not got even it. like okay. specific exercises. Just like like if you want to help decrease pain, like one of the best things to do is to to move. Okay. Um, I thought yeah, you said there yeah, was a the lack ev- of evidence. And then I was going to say, what does your clinical experience tell you about using movement as a tool oh, okay. to, uh, <laughs> thank you for clarifying <laughs> okay. that. No movement is about the only thing that we know that can help with pain Okay. <laughs> from right. a non-pharmological <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> All right. Got it. Got it. All right. We, yeah. Since we are talking about research here though, and I know that you're involved in research yourself, um, what do you think can be done better in research, is there one big thing that you'd like to fix if there is something fixable um, to conduct research, valuable research? Yeah, research is a really, really interesting thing. Um, and, you know, I have this conversation with um, some of my buddies who, you know, I don't have a PhD. A PhD is really, really hard to get. Um, and, you know, that PhDs, people with PhDs are, are oftentimes the ones that are doing the research. And, um, I've had this discussion with a lot of friends who have their PhDs. And as we are looking at the literature, so many times we're looking at these systematic reviews and meta-analyses and these things are, um, sort of, I don't want to say summaries. That's probably a bad word, but overall they, what these things do is they look at all of the studies on a certain topic, and they combine the results to try to give us information um, about a certain topic or about a certain intervention or a certain diagnosis or whatever it may be. And so they they can come, sometimes they can compare statistics and sometimes they can't. And so that's what kind of depends on if it's a meta-analysis or a systematic review. And so when you look at these things, though, one of the almost underlying things when you look at the end is it says, more research is needed. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right? Like that's usually yeah. the conclusion for almost every single one of them. So right. as someone, right. right, as a clinician who has a patient standing in front of her, what am I going to do with someone who has a certain diagnosis, right? And so again, that's where your clinician experience and patient values come into play. Um, but as I've kind of been talking about this with some of my friends who are PhDers, a lot of them are starting to look at, and I think it's funny, I, you know, it's funny how you can sometimes get a little bit slammed on social media. Um, and so I've had this conversation on social media before too, where people get really angry and upset if you reference or talk about a case study, um, because a case study isn't a systematic review. Um, and really a lot of PhDs, or at least my friends who are PhDs are kind of swinging back towards case studies and case series because these things are more real. And 
you know, it, these systematic reviews and meta-analyses and all of these research studies, they're done in a lab and they eliminate a lot of variables in order to look at one specific variable. And that's great. We need, absolutely need that research. I'm not trying to say we don't, but it's a very specific type of research that eliminates a lot of variables. And obviously all we have in patient care and in client care are variables. So a lot of times that research may not be super applicable to the patient or the client that's standing in front of us. And so this is where sometimes case studies and case series can be really, really valuable because they just simply report what happened. And then you can kind of take that information and apply it to the person standing in front of you on Monday morning. And so I think that it, it is important for clinicians um, and for um, strength and conditioning coaches and, and people who are working in the field to understand and recognize that there are multiple different types of research and all of the different types of research provide us with different values. Um, and depending on your definition, one of those research types, like a case series versus a meta-analysis, one of those may or may not be more valuable than, valuable than the other based on what your question is. Um, and so I think it's just important for us to note that there is more than one type of research and we shouldn't just wrap ourselves up if there's not a meta-analysis or a systematic review to tell us what to do, um, to not discount some of these other types of research. I think other types of research are just as important. How often do you see a, a research paper, any of the ones that you just mentioned, any type of research, and you just shake your head and just think like, what was that all about? And then on the other end, how often do you read a paper and think, wow, this, this was really valuable information? Really yeah, simple. all the time, right? I think okay. sometimes, you know, for the first scenario, I always just try to go back to, because research, research can be really hard. Like, let's say you just ask any question, like, um, okay, how does, um, let's say, how does foam rolling impact patellar tendonitis? Okay, well, that's a great that's a great question. Well, then you have to do the research or the lit review, and then you have to say, okay, well, well, what causes patella tendonitis? And then, well, what, well, how does why would foam rolling impact that? And then, how does foam rolling impact tissue? And then, how does foam rolling what tissue? Well, we can't foam roll the entire leg; we have to just look at one thing. So now you're looking at how does foam rolling impact the TFL. And then before you know it, you have a study about the TFL, not even about your original research question. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, so I tried, like whenever I read one of those studies where I think, what was this about? I just think they, they had to get so far away from their original research question because the literature wasn't there to tell them where to start, that they had to start with the most basic question. And in five years, these people are probably going to come out with their study that they really, really wanted to do uh, because the foundational study for them to set up their actual study that they wanted to do wasn't out there. So I try to always like frame it around that because um, research, when you start eliminating all the variables, it's really, really difficult to do. Um, and then, yeah, you know, when you've got a really good study, um, like a really good multi-centered, um, multi-clinician, standardized sort of patient care protocol, um, it, it's it's really, really impressive to kind of see how those things are organized and come together. And those things take years and years of work um, and are just just really, really impressive. So, so yeah, there's there's some really, really good stuff out there. And like I said, there's some really not good stuff out there. And so just because it's published in a peer-reviewed journal doesn't mean it's, doesn't mean it's evidence. So that's, that's where your clinician, um, you know, skills have to come into play in order to interpret this research. Got it. Yeah. 
Great stuff. We're going to totally shift gears now. And um, something I, I read in the book, I wrote down a couple things here, but uh, one thing was that many athletes live in a sympathetic state. Um, mm. One of the little, the little pearls in there. So what do we do to minimize this and, and should we? Yeah, I, I think, again, this kind of goes back to that center box of the book, that somatosensory system. You know, when we start looking at the autonomic nervous system, it's it's all a balance, right? Our, our bodies, from a nervous system standpoint, we are in, in one of two places. We are in fight or flight or we are in feed and breed. Like those are our two places. We are either sympathetic or we are parasympathetic. And so much of our lives, not even athletes, but just everybody. I mean, we're constantly on the phone. We're constantly looking at social media. We're constantly have lights on, right? Even our books now, we're looking at Kindles instead of textbooks. And we're reading on computers and tablets instead of books. Everything is light. Everything is stimulation. Everything is is sympathetic. Everything is about being turned on as opposed to being parasympathetic, as opposed to rest, as opposed to not having lights on, as opposed to not having sound, as opposed to, you know, feeding and breeding, kind of that more relaxation digestion state. Um, and so really so much of what I'm dealing with with my clients now is trying to balance the autonomic nervous system. Um, and what I'm finding is, is that it's, it's a really, really interesting approach. I think that when I look at the athletes and clients that I deal with, you know, they are, it is constant. It is, you know, they've got practice in the morning, then they have a meeting, you know, with one of their endorsements for two hours, and then they have another practice, and then they've got rehab, and then they've got to go home to the family, and then they've got kids, and then, you know, it's just a constant, and then there's media, and it's just constant, constant, constant. 50,000 people watching what they're doing, screaming, the noise, music, it's just everything's on, 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 on. And so if I can take the opportunity to tap into their parasympathetic system a little bit, um, shut their nervous system. I don't want to say shut their nervous system down, but just flip the switch from on to off. Even if it's just for a few minutes a day, sometimes it's the only few minutes that, um, that they get to just calm. And so I can do that through deep breathing. There's a lot of evidence that shows the yogic breath, um, can help tap into the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that's why I do a lot of breathing with my patients and with my clients. Um, it's not something that we do for an hour. It's something we do for a few minutes, maybe to start or end our session. Um, but it really kind of helps them tap into that autonomic nervous system. And so many athletes are more open to that concept now of sort of breath and meditation and kind of that, that shutting down and resting. Um, and I just try to equate it to the fact that, you know, if you left your light on in your, in your bedroom, it, eventually the light bulb is going to burn out. If you want that light bulb to last longer, you need to shut the light off every time you walk out of the room and, and yeah, the light bulb is going to eventually shut off, you know, or die out. But if you shut it off every time you walk out of the room, that light bulb is going to last a lot longer. And so same thing with them. They're the light bulb. If I can just shut their nervous system down or flip the switch to the to parasympathetic, um, any chance I can get, it's going to, it's going to make, make them last a little bit longer. And they seem to be able to respond and identify to that. What do you advocate specifically? Like, uh, you mentioned deep breathing, but what is the technique? And I mean, like what position, uh, what period of time, what inhale, exhale ratio, what, what do you advocate most commonly? And what do you see your athletes use? 
Yeah. A lot of times uh, it's just going to be maybe the way we begin a session to sort of focus. And a lot of times it depends on if it's an in-season situation, off-season situation, if you know what kind of where we are. But a lot of times it's just a way to either begin the session in order to kind of get them focused and locked into what I'm doing. Like, hey, okay, I know you just had practice and your coach was just yelling at you and you just got done with the media and you want to kill everybody because they just asked you a really irritating question. So let's focus on you. This is about whatever we're about to do and whatever we're going to accomplish. So I kind of use some of um, Jill Miller's concepts from um, the yoga tune-up and I take a, a small ball and place it in their belly and kind of have them do a little bit of stomach massage to try to get a little um, vagus nerve stimulation, um, having them take in some deep breaths. And I just usually have them, I don't care what the count is, but if they're going to inhale for a count of five, I want them to exhale for a count of five. If it's an inhale for a count of six, they're going to exhale for a count of six. Um, and just kind of get them sort of tapped into that rhythmic breathing and a little bit of abdominal massage. They might be in they're usually if they're doing the abdominal massage, they're more in kind of a prone position, but I might have them in a supine hook line position, eyes closed, and just sort of focusing on three-dimensional breathing. Um, and then begin to do some mobility work in their upper body and in their hips. And then it's literally probably under 10 minutes, probably closer to five minutes. And then we kind of get up and we begin whatever we're going to focus on. And then maybe that's another way for us to end it. We kind of bring it back for the last three to five minutes of the session, take a few more deep breaths, and then they go on to the rest of their day. And do you like them to do that on their own too? I mean, kind of maybe somehow build in a breathing practice as kind of their daily ritual? Absolutely. A lot of them will start to do that, whether it's first thing in the morning or the first thing that they do when they get to the field or the last thing they do before they go to bed in order to kind of help them wind down. It's really difficult for most of us to to kind of shut the electronics off, right, for that hour before we're supposed to go to bed. I mean, even I have a hard time with that. So, you know, the the younger, younger athletes are going to have a more difficult time with that too. So if I can start to get them into some type of breathing habit to sort of get them prepared for sleep. And that's try to, you know, how I approach it is, Hey, just like you warm up to prepare for practice, you need to prepare for sleep too, and to get your mind right and to get your body right in order to to shut down. And so if I can start to get them into that habit before they go to bed, that's absolutely huge. You talked about in that kind of the same section there that, and we've been talking about diaphragmatic breathing, deep breathing, the diaphragm can be trained like any other muscle in the body. Uh, for strength athletes, for lifters, uh, do you think that they're uh, maybe training the diaphragm more efficiently than some other athletes just because of the if, the, if they're good lifters, let's assume, where they have their breathing techniques down, um, or is that something they should still do as well, in addition, you know, like you just described? Well, I think that's an interesting point because I think you're right. Like people who are really good lifters, power lifters, um, Olympic lifters, like usually they've got really, really good lifting technique. And so when we look at the diaphragm, the diaphragm has two functions, right? It helps provide some thoracolumbar stability. Um, so it helps provide some, some core stability and it's a, and it's a respirator. So if it has to choose, it will always choose life over stability, right? When it has to choose one of its two jobs. So it will sacrifice your body's stability in order to make sure that you're breathing. And so people who are really good lifters typically have really good um, they can utilize their diaphragm really, really well as a stabilizer, which is which is great. Um, and so yeah, they they may just have to focus on it from a different perspective. I think that um um 
people who don't utilize their diaphragm well as a stabilizer is because that's why we have so many people with tight hip flexors and tight hamstrings is because when our diaphragm stops functioning as a stabilizer, our hip flexors get toned up, our hamstrings get toned up, and that's how we get artificial core stability. Um, so yeah, I think people who are really good at lifts, um, they have to have a strong diaphragm because they have to create that inner intra abdominal pressure in order to, to finish the lift. How do you, how do you incorporate breathing yourself? I mean, I know you're, you're into yoga. Yeah, it's a huge part of my yoga session. It's a huge, I've really just gotten into meditation as well since May. Um, meditation has always been something that's been really, really difficult for me. Um, and that's why like most of my yoga training and most of the yoga that I do is more of a vinyasa flow that focuses on linking breath to movement. So every breath, every movement has an inhale and every movement has an exhale. Um, but bottom line is you're moving and that is more of my, like my meditation has been more of a movement meditation as opposed to since May, I've really been focusing more on a breath based meditation and more of like a, you know, laying down meditation, which right, has been really right. difficult. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I've been incorporating breath more in that way. And it's been really interesting. Some of the, the some of the exercises that we do, because I belong to a meditation gym, which just makes me giggle, um, that I actually pay somewhere to like go lay in a dark room with gongs. And I do that every month or every week, but (laughs) like you can tell I'm getting old, but that's now where like my gym membership is going to a meditation center instead of an actual gym. Um, but you know, I just priorities switch and, and things switch, right. As you, as you sort of go into different seasons in your life. And so some of the, um, things that they have us do and play with, like sometimes they'll have us pull our stomach really, really in really tight and have us breathe and then push our stomachs way out and then have us breathe. And then sometimes just let the stomach move naturally. And it's just been a really interesting exercise to kind of see and know and intuitively what we've, what I've always kind of intuitively talked about. Um, but as you kind of manipulate and play with breath and sort of what that does to your body from a mobility standpoint, from a stability standpoint, from a relaxation standpoint, it's, it's been really, really interesting to explore over the last few months. All right. Yeah. So I know we're, uh, getting ready to wind down here. A couple more questions for you. In the beginning, we talked about, you know, your experience as a PT athletic trainer and strength and conditioning professional. Uh, I'm curious, how would you describe the current state of physical therapy in particular? Interesting. The current state. Um, you know, I, I might be a little removed from that question in general, um, just because I have such a strange concierge practice at this point that I'm, it's not like I'm operating in an outpatient orthopedic clinic anymore. Um, or, you know, I'm really sort of interacting with insurances, but, um, uh, I, I think overall in general, just kind of going off of some other, um, medical things that I've sort of seen over the last few months with different families. And, you know, our, our healthcare system is in such a fragile state. Um, and it's really sort of unfortunate to just kind of see, um, kind of what's happening with reimbursement rates and, and things that are not being covered and, and pre-authorizations and how long it takes. I mean, just some, some personal things. I mean, I understand the system and I understand health insurance and I am just amazed at how long it takes to get diagnostic tests performed when, um, you know, you don't have, uh, a physician on speed dial <laughs> to, to order it for you. And so, you know, I kind of live in this magical bubble where if, if I think one of my patients needs a, an MRI, you know, I have a f- discussion with a physician and the MRI is, 
happening and read within 36 hours. And, and that's not how it happens in the real world. Um, I have sadly found out over the last few months, it, it takes weeks and sometimes months for things to get approved. And, and oftentimes what people need gets denied. And, and it's, um, it's really an unfortunate, sad state and I have no idea how to fix it. Um, but I think that's why so many physical therapists are, you know, looking into, the addition of cash-based practices um, in their network and, and cash-based services um, and why physical therapists and strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers need to, to combine because, um, like I said before, people are showing up in gyms more injured than ever before and um, personal trainers are having to figure out how to deal with these people and physical therapists are running out of of services and are trying to figure out a way to expand services to their patients and to their clients. And so I think now more than ever is the perfect time to have some type of professional marriage between a physical therapist and a strength coach. Um, because I just don't see how we, um, elevate the population's health status any other way. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's safe to say that, uh, a clinician, uh, PT, especially that doesn't have a strength and conditioning background. I think this is the book they, they should get. I mean, uh, I think they're going to get a lot of value out of this, out of the approach and everything that you outline in the book. And I think it'd be hugely valuable for their, their practice and how they, uh, approach their, their treatments. My recommendation to get the book would be to go to otpbooks.com. Uh, unless you have another recommendation, I believe it's on Amazon as well, but I think you get all the extras if you, uh, go to otpbooks.com. Yep, exactly. Perfect. And, uh, Sue, your primary website is? Yes, it is suefalsoni.com. And then my other one is structureandfunction.net. Fantastic. And then best place on social media to, uh, track you down. Yep. Just my name, Sue Falsoni. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right. So I usually ask uh, the guests that two, two final questions, and then we'll, we'll close things down. I usually always ask a, a book recommendation for the audience, but actually I'm going to turn the tables and actually recommend to the audience. And I, I rarely ever do this, but um, this is a really good book. And I think that especially if you're a, a fitness professional, especially if you're a clinician, um, the title is Bridge the Gap, and, and truly that's what it does. Uh, what's, what's really interesting is I was using the, the phrase bridge the gap on my website for, for a little while. And I, I kind of took it down because I started reading your stuff and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not bridging the gap the way that she's really bridging the gap. So I changed it <laughs> based <laughs> on your book. And that's, that's just the truth. Um, uh, a lot of what I write and talk about is, is strength and my, my former background as a, as a PT. But I mean, truly, this is a, a book that uh, bridges the gap. So I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to make that recommendation. My final question will be this, though. Uh, what is an actionable takeaway that uh, either a strength and conditioning professional uh, can walk away with or a rehab professional after hearing all this information? I I, I actually have a takeaway myself and maybe you'll just kind of reaffirm that, but what's something to think about or to go and, and use? Yeah. My takeaway would be whatever, um, if you're a healthcare professional or you're a strength and conditioning professional to find your, um, kindred spirit and the other person in your community. Um, I would say if, mm -hmm. you know, people always ask, how do I do that? Just 
I seek to understand. I'm sure there's a, a physical therapy um, place within five miles of your gym and vice versa. Physical therapist, there's probably a gym within five miles of your clinic. Walk in, introduce yourself, see what those people are doing, ask questions, see if they're open to, to collaboration and to communication. Um, people always love talking about themselves, right? So if you walk in and start asking, what do you do here? And, and, and you know, here's what I do and um, here's what I'm looking for and I'd love to collaborate. Usually people are, are pretty open. Um, so I would just encourage people to, to find someone in your community that you can begin to patient share and client share. Um, in the best interest of your patient and really kind of create that patient-centered model or athlete-centered model in your community. That's great advice. I will, uh, I'll end on that note. So thank you so much, Sue, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your contributions to the industry, uh, the impact you're making for all of us. And I'm really honored to have you come back on the show and I wish you the best success with your book moving forward. Oh, thank you so much. I, I appreciate the kind words and the support and I appreciate you having me back on the show. Thank you so much. All right, guys, I'm going to quickly sign off here, but I just wanted to mention that if you're not part of the Ardella training community, make sure that you go to ardellatraining.com forward slash join and become part of the strength and performance community. I send out weekly emails with valuable insights, tips, and the latest happenings. I'm sure that you will get value from that, and I'd love to see you on the inside. Also, one last thing, guys, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor and drop in a quick review in Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it will take you only a minute of your time, and it helps the show significantly. Guys, thank you so much if you've already done that. I really appreciate it. And until next week, have a great week, and I will talk to you again soon. Take care, guys.